The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. As we constantly move forward, there is a continuing and urgent need for higher education. It's necessary for tomorrow's future and for a dynamically changing workforce. As the need for education is changing, so is education itself. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with your host, Dave Goldberg. In this program, we'll discuss the complex changes that are being made to higher education today, and we'll help you stay ahead of tomorrow if you're a student, educator, or in the workforce. Now, here's Dave Goldberg. Good day, and welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. I am Dave Goldberg. I'm your show host, and Big Beacon is a movement to transform higher education at bigbeacon.org. In every episode, we explore some of the innovators and innovations that are changing the world of higher education all around us. And you can follow live tweeting of the show, ask questions, or make comments about the show during the program on Twitter at hashtag BigBeacon. And you can write in your questions uh, to me during the show at deg at bigbeacon.org. Our first segment is sponsored by the book that is Transforming Higher Education, A Whole New Engineer, The Coming Revolution in Engineering Education at wholenewengineer.org. It's not just for engineers anymore. And today we're blessed to have the provost of Olin College with us, Vin Mano. Welcome to the show, Vin. Hi, Dave. Nice to be on the show. Well, it's great to have you. It's your first time on the show, and um, we want to talk about... uh, uh, talk about Olin and talk about what's new at Olin and, uh, and, and what to expect for the future. But, uh, you know, Vin, we like to get to know our guests and, and, uh, you are provost of Olin. You're, this is one of the high, hottest properties in higher education. You, you were an academic leader at Tufts. You've been a researcher and a professor in mechanical engineering for many years with your work in power generation and thermal management of electronics. But let's hop, uh, hop in the time machine and and go back what were what were some of the early influences that that put you on your current path well that's a that's a <clears throat> that's a great question david uh um and i'm trying to i'll try to reflect on that a little um i wish i could um run together a uh you know a very coherent straight line uh narrative but i don't think it exists uh i uh you know i i, I grew up in new york city as a kid from Brooklyn, New York, with uh, no engineers in the family at all, um, but still, but somehow had this um, had this in, in, in intrinsic interest in technology. And given given the generation that I'm part of, that was probably the space program that was just seemed uh, to capture 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 my imagination capture my imagination um, as a illustration of the non straight line path. Um, I went to high school in a uh, small uh, Jesuit high school in, in 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 Manhattan, actually in New York City, that really focused much more on the liberal arts and classical education, where we learned uh, where we Latin and and history and and rhetoric and the like. So I don't know how exactly that put me on a path to engineering. Um, I went off to 
uh, Columbia um, University. And I remember when I left high school, this was a high school that produced mostly um, lawyers, physicians, and, and priests, if you will. So the idea of going off to engineering school was a little bit odd. Uh, but it uh, continued, continued that interest. Um, and, um, you know, it's just somehow I, 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 I kept along that path. I'd say the other, one other um, key influences for me is that uh, in the midst of graduate school, I decided to uh, take a break and actually work as an engineer for a while, in the, uh, actually in the utility industry. And that was, uh, I think that was actually a key influence on my career, just to see a broader perspective and to see the non-technical aspects of engineering and how important that was. What uh, were you uh, in a design office? Were you in the field building a power plant? What were you? I was. You, I was, you know? worked for American Electric Power Corporation, which was a really interesting uh, company in that it was one of the few uh, utilities in the United States that actually built and designed its own power plants. Most utilities mm. contract out to architect engineers. So this was a this was a firm that actually built its own power plants, fossil plants, nuclear plants, infrastructures. Um, and the like. So it really gave me an appreciation for, if you will, uh, systems engineering uh, and a combination of both uh, design work and analysis work. Um, and analysis, interesting enough, in the nuclear safety area. So besides doing engineering, I got to spend a lot of time uh, both writing and working with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. So I think I learned how to write as in it more in, in, the, in the practice of engineering than I did in school. Well, that's yeah, that's so interesting, and I think we're close to being contemporaries, and 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 that actually was a strange, you know. So that was uh, towards the end of the, the the winding down of the Vietnam War, uh, and and uh, technology didn't have the greatest. No, <laughs> uh, it was not. A, it was not a time to really go into engineering school. Uh, it wasn't a popular time to be in engineering, and it was a military industrial complex, and people who uh, were engineers were. Um, on the wrong side of uh, of the war and so forth. So it's interesting that without uh, you know the the encouragement of engineers in the family, that that was something that uh, grabbed a hold of you. Yes. Well, I, as I said, I think it was very much intrinsic, and I've uh, yet to unravel exactly how deep that intrinsic motivation was. Yeah, and and, um, and we're also as as you know on this show, we're interested in the uh, kinds of unleashing experiences that. Uh, uh, Mark Somerville at Olin and I write about in a whole new engineer this idea that somehow either we uh, someone trusts you, you trust yourself, and you have the courage to do to do something that you might not have have done. Are are, are there are there people um, like that in your your past or experiences like that where uh, you thought? Uh, in, in what ways uh, you were particularly unleashed or able to able to go your own way um, and do something that you might not otherwise have done? That's a you know, that's a, it's, 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 it's an interesting question. If I think about think about that for a second, because I think when I if I tease it apart, I, I could think about it in two in two ways. Um, one is more of what may have influenced. Um, unleashing in more of a professional direction. But mm. I, I think the first dimension of, if you will, to use this unleashing narrative, um, actually I think it's being, I, I think, believe it or not, is, 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 is having a family uh, and being married and having, having to, you know, uh, and having to balance all the, um, to, to, to balance the different 
responsibilities and aspects of your life in a complicated, not in a complicated family, what is, what is complicated modern family life, a, pro, a professional spouse, three children, and uh, trying to figure out how you actually uh, negotiate and modulate the different activities that, that you have. To a certain extent, it it's almost gives a healthy tension to your professional life. Uh, and, and makes you think a little bit more about how to proceed with things. As, as far as just sort of a personal, professional, and or technical um, direction, I did have some, you know, I think some opportunities way early, I think as far as a mentor is concerned. I'd say my graduate mentor when I was in graduate school at MIT actually pulled me aside towards the end of my program and said, if you thought about, I was going to plan to go back to industry. And he, he had said to me, have you, think, have you thought about, you know, going into, you know, higher education. And I really had not thought that much about it. And, and he said, well, I think you might, I think you personally might get a lot of satisfaction in that direction. And then he said, well, being engineers, let me give you some data. And the data I want to share with you is that when they um, survey folks throughout their careers, they find that uh, university professors when they when you survey them in their 40s and their 50s and their 60s for the most part are have a much have a higher job satisfaction than folks in other in other areas so he said if you know if you take a long term view if you're both good at it you think you're motivated for it it's it's an interesting career path so i think that affected me uh to a, to a, to a certain to a certain degree as far as unleashing sort of out of a comfort zone uh one of the somehow while i was at tufts i became the institutional lead for something called the solar decathlon, um, yes. which, in which the Department of Energy uh, grants or selects a certain number of colleges to uh, design, build, and put together a solar house that eventually at that time, as in the early 2000s, was uh, reassembled and displayed on the, on the mall down in Washington, uh, D.C. And actually having the responsibility for that, working with another institution, we actually worked with an architectural college, but just really having the responsibility and the challenge of trying to make sort of this complex project uh, come together was probably to a certain extent uh, an unleashing experience as far as, I was, as far as I was concerned, to see what a group of motivated people could get done almost in an entrepreneurial sense, when it wasn't quite clear what path to take or what resources were or were not available. As you, as you, um, as you think back about that experience, and it's probably a tough question, but are there, what, what, were, what are the takeaways now as you think, as you think back on, on that, of, of what it was that you, maybe some of the big takeaways that you might have learned from that? I think some of them, you know, are going to be uh, things that you're not that you're going to not find un- un- unexpected. Is that yeah. the difference between success and failure was so much more based on the willingness of people uh, to trust and make things work as a team, mm-hmm. uh, rather than the basis of individual contributions, was was a tremendous factor. Personal relationships were absolutely critical, both for resolving disputes, but more of trying to come up with answers that you yourself did not have. Uh, so it's almost the sense of, and as, as almost the 
institutional leader of a project to become comfortable with the fact that there were times that you would, most of the time, defer to the sort of the wisdom of others to come up with some good options and then intervene as far as trying to shape or choose among those options. So I, I think the people aspects yeah. of, the, of the project were probably the, one of the biggest takeaways. And the second was how much work people will do when they are when their motivation is intrinsic, as you and Mark point out in their book, yeah. as opposed to it being just an assignment. Well, and it's so interesting, and one of the difficult parts of, of the transformation task in front of higher ed is the individual nature of faculty rewards and culture, and yet a lot of the good stuff, as you point out, in complex projects comes from the the, and, and you said it so beautifully, these things about relationships and, and respect and, and, and working together. And, and, uh, and also, I heard, in, I heard in what you were saying, um, comfort in not knowing and comfort in ambiguity and, and uh, trusting that the, the team could figure it out. And, yes. and that's so unlike what higher ed is today in many ways. And part of the big the difficulty in that uh, I'm, I'm making my own assessment here, but part of the difficulty in moving ahead and doing the kind of transformation that many of us are calling for is right, right, right around what we're talking about. Comment? Yeah, I, that was uh, you know the unleashing aspect of that is very much what you described. That most of my other life, if you will on the faculty and uh, in various academic roles at, at, at Tufts was more in the expert yep. character. Um, yep. and, but it realized when I got into this project, there were just dimensions and aspects of this project that I couldn't even pretend to be the expert in. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> nice. I just didn't know. Yeah. So then we've had other we've had a number of faculty and leaders from Olin on the show, but um, help remind our listeners um, – uh, what's what's uh, what's Olin's short story? Uh, been around since uh, just before the turn of the turn of the century, and and uh, it's now 2016. What give us the the short version of Olin's uh, Olin's story? Well, I'll try. And Dave, uh, you're you you have a, a great deal of familiarity with Olin, so if there are uh, pieces that I really brush over, please uh, tell sure. me, and I'll be happy to expand on it. So as you mentioned. Uh, Olin was chartered in 1999. It is the uh, product and the creation of what was the Franklin W. Olin Foundation, which many of your listeners may be familiar with. At least they probably are familiar with the Olin Halls and Olin Buildings that are sprinkled, you know, in, in, in dozens of campuses across the United States because the Olin Foundation in its first 50 or 60 years focused on giving, um, supporting universities and colleges by giving them money to build academic buildings. Um, in the 19, 1990s, the foundation took a rather, rather radical step. Basically, it dissolved itself uh, to form a brand-new engineering college uh, focused on uh, what they hoped would be to um, create, um, if you will, what I'll call a laboratory school, uh, to redefine undergraduate engineering education with a focus on um, entrepreneurship and with a focus on um, uh, some important personal core values 
and uh, abandoning some of the traditional constructs of higher education. And um, finally, not only to form a school, if you will, but with the aspirational goal of that this school would not only would not really be as much for itself as it was to be a catalyst for external change in in, in engineering education. So as you mentioned, it uh, was formed here in Needham, Massachusetts, very close to Babson College, which um, which as you probably know is one of the leading schools for entrepreneurship in the United States. And uh, we graduated our first class in 2006. Um, so now we're approaching our 11th, uh, 11th commencement. It is a small school uh, with uh, about 350 some odd students. For all. that's totaled across all four undergraduate years. There is no undergraduate program. All our students uh, receive engineering degrees. We have three ABET accredited degrees: um, a general engineering degree, a degree in electrical and computer engineering, and a mechanical engineering degree. We have. 40-some-odd full-time faculty members and a small number of other folks who work with us. I'd say the most important aspect to me is that we have no academic departments. It is a faculty of the whole, um, which has some really important ramifications as far as our innovation mission. And also, the faculty, we do not have a tenure system. The faculty are on multi-year performance-based contracts so periodically uh, the faculty go through a reappointment process. Yeah, nice. And I, 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 every time I, I, you know, sometimes you like to hear your favorite bedtime story. And every time I hear the, the story of the Olin Foundation going for broke and going all, I see a big poker table and then pushing all the, you know, <laughs> ha- half a billion dollars worth of chips in. And I just, I love that story. And it's, uh, it's so bold, and and uh, and and who knew the fruits were going to be as uh, uh, delicious as they've turned out to be? You've you've been provost since uh, uh, 2011, um, so you're a little over five years into that role. What and and you came from Tufts. What 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 got you interested in the position? Yeah, well, I'll be glad to answer. I'll try to at least answer that question as honestly as I as as, as I can. But your original analogy, I, I really love that image of of the poker table and all these chips going to the middle. Admittedly, it's a much better story now that we sort of know the, uh, the uh, at least the middle, of that's the, at least the story progressing as opposed to when the chips first came on the table because it was a huge, a huge bet. I mean, if I had, if I could say one more thing on that topic, sure. the, the bolus of the foundation at the time was close to a half a billion dollars. You know, it was close yeah. to $500 million. And... Um, and one and one of the reasons for the, one other core value that the institution had was actually to um, reward student merit. So that's why it initially had no tuition, and now still has a very generous merit-based uh, financial aid and tuition policy. But what I always think is that half a billion dollars, you know, even today, is a lot of money. And if it was to create a school that would graduate, you know, eighty some odd very well trained undergraduate. Um, engineers of a different, uh, you know, of a some, somewhat different mentality. That would be an interesting outcome, but probably not worth a half a billion dollars. But the idea that the outcome actually had this aspiration, and now the aspiration, I think, coming to some fruition of stimulating the external change, then to me it becomes a very economical bet. 
Um, so if you, I appreciate you giving me the chance to to say that no. because I think that yeah. um, th- I think that's I think that's important. What what interested me? Oh my gosh, Dave! What didn't interest me in this position? Um, the idea that in in a nutshell um, of having just this opportunity, um, undergraduate education has always been an important aspect of my own career. Um, I continue to teach no matter what position I was in at Tufts. In fact, I used to make them write that into various administrative contracts. Not that I would have the option to teach, but that I had to teach um, to a sense so that it could, um, so that no one could take that away from me, so to speak. Um, But here, the idea of actually being part of an institution where actually I think, you know, moved, even though we all think academics, academia moves slow by other standards um, relative to other academic institutions, to be part of an institution that was commissioned, if you will, to be a change agent at a, at a time scale, which I might even see that change, was just an extraordinary opportunity I couldn't give up. Yeah, nice. I'd like to explore this a little bit more and get a, get a little bit more on, on, on what the ride's been like for you over the last five years, but let's, <laughs> let's take a... Let's take a bit of a break, and we'll come back after the break and pick up there and then talk a little bit about what's uh, distinctive about Olin. How's, how's that sound? That sounds fine, Dave. Great. Um, this is Big Beacon Radio with our special guest, Vin Mano from Olin College. Stay tuned, and we're going to talk a little bit about Vin's journey and, and uh, the ways in which uh, Olin College is, is in some ways distinctive. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. Uh, the second segment is sponsored by 3Joy Associates. Get the training, coaching, and change leadership consultation to help transform your organization or educational institution. And to ask uh, our guest questions or make comments, uh, go to Twitter and use the hashtag Big Beacon, and we'll get your questions on the air. So we're back with Vin Mano, uh, provost of Olin College. And, and Vin, before the break, we were kind of we were talking about uh, some of well, some of your career experience, as well as reminding our listeners of, about Olin, and 
uh, you've been on this journey at um, um, you know, the, the school started in uh, uh, 1999. You came in uh, as, um, I believe, the third provost um, or third academic VP in 2011. And what's and now you've been doing it for a little over five years. Uh, that's actually got a, Olin's a, an atypical culture, and uh, and so kind of onboarding must have uh, been an interesting experience. Uh, in what ways was it? Um, yeah, tell us about your journey over the last five years a little bit. Oh my gosh! Well, I'll try to uh, try to give you this the, the very the, the very the very short version. It certainly has been a, a journey, and. You know, as you pointed out, um, my last uh, my, my last gig was at Tufts University for 27 years. So this is yep. a um, and this was a, a major uh, a major departure. the The journey has been, I have to say, that uh, the this is prob this has been not probably this has been, I'd say, uh, the busiest and most um, perspective expanding experience of my mm. of my professional life. Uh, in that, and I think I've actually um, changed as a person. Perhaps we're able to tap into potential that I thought I had uh, for uh, in in a, in a ro- that a role like this gives you uh, to work with people to try to uh, move ahead with uh, sort of a consensus-driven uh, joint joint efforts. The other aspect, as far as the journey, is to be at an institution that has such a clear mission almost sewed into its culture. Yes. Um, that um, I recall during a recent uh, faculty candidate a few years ago, when we interview faculty candidates, it usually goes on for a couple of days, and often I'm the first and the last stop on the train. And um, the, uh, so the person came in and chatted with me after they were, had been at Olin for about 48 hours, and uh, they said, you know, I've been to places that say they have a mission and have mission statements. I've never been to a place that's been mission-obsessive. And that's what I feel uh, at Olin. And I think that, that to me, nailed it as far as my own journey was, was concerned, to actually be part of an institution that had a, not only the institution that had a very clear mission, but nearly to a person, everybody engaged in the institution to one degree or another in try to, try, trying to embody that mission. So I think that... That that gives you a little bit of insight into my own personal journey. Yeah, and um, I guess I and, and I, I guess I'm wondering. Um, so that's such an interesting way of uh, putting it, and you know, my own observations of the institution um, would agree with that assessment. And so, um, how does that how does that mission obsessiveness uh, or uh, intrinsic mission or the way that it's baked in, I'm not exactly sure the best way to talk about it is, but how does that, how does that manifest itself? How, in, um, how would that manifest itself to, uh, to a young, per, young faculty, prospective faculty member like that? How would they, how would they see that? So as a young faculty, you know, as a, as a, as a, as a relatively new faculty member, I'd say that, well, certainly 
with the vast majority of our faculty, no matter what their, you know, where they are, are in their careers, having come from, if you will, um, at least in their education, very traditional yep. discipline, discipline-based education, the idea that sort of general learning, uh, student empowerment, um, the idea that, um, that constant constant reflection and review of what you're doing and why you're doing it and what actually the learning and broader outcomes are of what you're taking on is so much part of the conversation, I think, is a real real departure. And that that conversation is, at least to the degree that we can, is cast as a group conversation. Um, This idea that learning is not compartmentalized. Um, that even though there are clearly expertise, that it's not that you sort of focused on dilettante education, but that there has to be a connectivity and a coherency to the overall learning experience. And, um, and, 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 and when you think about doing something as an individual, you are required almost as part of in that initial process of trying to understand the feedback and second-order effects on the rest of the operation. Uh, I'd say that departure from the me to the we uh, mm. is probably what people sense the most. Yeah. And I guess, you know, and going back to my own engagement with the institution almost 10 years ago, back to... 2007, when I first met Shara Kearns and and Mark and and Rick Miller, that, that um, it, it just seems this. Uh, you, you, it, I I guess I'm agreeing with the things you said, but I guess one of the things that sticks with me strongly is this kind of willingness to reflect at a drop of a hat. I mean, so so uh, it like to have a you know in the rest of the world to have a reflective conversation where you're talking about what you just learned or what did we get out of that is actually fairly unusual. I mean, it's like, so you know, somebody knows something, they transfer it to someone and we're, you're done. And I think one of the things that was so attractive to me 10, almost 10 years ago and working with my Olin colleagues is that uh, this willingness to think about things and uh, somebody has an idea or, or a, a resource or something to bring to the table and go, oh, that's interesting and a curiosity about it. And then, well, what does that mean to what we're doing? And, and, um, um, you called it out, and and you called it out, and 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 actually, as I think about it, almost all of my experiences with Olin people were in groups of of well, certainly at least two, and oftentimes more. Yeah, actually, you know, I'll, I'll give you uh, a couple of reflections on that. Uh, one, I'll give you a reflection as sort of our what our um, expectations or our social contract is with the uh, Olin students but also give you uh, a very recent example from the, fa- from the faculty. Um, Olin students, uh, I think, we hope, we know when, uh, they know when they come to Olin. Olin is, Olin is not the best school for everyone, and, and you know, I don't even like that word best. Uh, Olin is a great school for some students, especially people who are interested in um, somewhat of a different approach, if interested in a very small, uh, as I said, mission-centric uh, mission-centric school, but also one in which um, sort of engaged learning is a prerequisite, is the idea that students are here to not only be learners, but to help and contribute to the ongoing evolution 
of the learning environment. And if they, that's both a power and a responsibility um, that it's expected. We don't want to, you know, courses to end with students saying, well, supposedly negatively reviewing a course if the students had not been part of some reflection and feedback during the course of saying, well, what could we have done better? What course corrections could we have uh, undertaken? It's a joint responsibility. But as far as the faculty is concerned, it is, um, it is a really interesting culture. The other, a few, just a few weeks ago, we were trying to explore the potential of new um, collaborative uh, teaching experiences among the faculty. And literally, at a faculty meeting, it was arranged almost like the speed dating experiment, where people just lined up in rows across from each other and would just exchange rapidly ideas back and forth about what they were each doing and what might be connections. And then time was called, and you'd move to the next person and the next person and the next person. And what was really impressive to me as a sort of watching this thing happen, of how this dynamic was like turning on a light switch. You know, 40 or 45 people came into a room. Uh, one of our associate deans, Rob Martello, or, and, 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 and one of our committees, a curriculum innovation committee, basically provided some scaffolding of this activity and said, this is what we're doing, this is how, and we're going to do it. And the faculty immediately transitioned into that role. And now we're mining a great deal of interesting potentially useful data, if you will, yeah. from that exercise that went on for about two hours. But to me, it was just that experience of how quickly people transition to that type of behavior. Well, and I find, too, in my interactions with the institution that there's a lot of respect for what Ed Schein calls process consulting, That so that, that if, if you trust people with good ideas and so forth, that the key thing is to set up processes that allow them to express is, is the example that you just gave is, is an example of that. And much of what I see at Olin in the classroom is is respect for different kinds of processes that elicit um, the kind of response that you want. So so it's not as, I'd say in many ways, Olin is in this way less, it, it's not, and I don't want to, you know, and this is, can be a negative people, it's less content driven. That's that's not fair. But, but, it's, but it is strongly process it's strongly reflection driven and strongly process driven that there there exist processes that can help us be more creative and more innovative together comment i think no i think it's fair and i don't view it as a negative comment certainly we're always trying to figure out that balance content is always um, if you will uh, a while ago i talked about sort of um, the idea and the and the uh, power of healthy tension and yep. And the idea of tension and process, I think Olin certainly probably process does trump content. Uh, and, but one layer beneath that is a belief that the process being used to it, de- de- deliver or at least expose people to the content and the, in the hope that they will use the content yep. and learn it through using is certainly Experiential learning is certainly um, a, 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 a backbone, and there are even in in, in all courses, I would say, uh, content. You know, we don't try to compromise too much on content, but I think it would be fair to say even in traditional engineering and engineering science courses here at Olin, as far as content is concerned, we probably cover sometimes less. Sometimes we cover less in more detail. 
Uh, <laughs> yeah. But uh, but to a certain extent, uh, there's no panic of no we're uh, no we're not going to cover all 14 chapters of the thermodynamics book. Um, and I think uh, people are uh, understand what that what that entails. Yeah. And and um, yeah. And so and 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 I and. I, th- I don't want to give the content and the curriculum side short shrift, although that's that's my tendency, and and uh, and as you know, I, I sort of focus on a lot of times focus on process and culture and 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 emotion as some of the missing ingredients of of uh, educational transformation. But but in you know, as someone who came from fairly traditional. Uh, place and into Olin and your last five years of kind of getting to know the curriculum. Um, in in what ways is the is content and curriculum uh, similar or different from the other other schools that you're familiar with? Well, and, and um, you know, I'll, I'll comment on that. But I, I think you're, the the point that you just made is an is an important one um, as far as uh, content is concerned. We still we it would be um, it really wouldn't be right for us to minimize content to the extent of we want our students to leave Olin with a spectrum of possible outcomes for themselves. So we can't compromise so much on content that Olin students would not be able to hold their own in traditional engineering graduate programs. And our experience is that our students do do very well in those programs. Um, they often, sometimes, sometimes they have an interesting journey in that um, the, maybe the first year or so of a graduate program where you might be taking an advanced course where in other places you may have taken that advanced course already as a senior. Um, yeah. It might be the first time they have seen that material, but they have, we think, learned how to learn and power themselves through that initial experience and do very well when they get into the, sort of the open-ended creative sort of research side of their graduate education. So we do try to focus in that balance. Um, as far as comparing it to other places, first, you know, as far as caveat, and this is just to be fair, um, you know, as far as my experience, I'd say my three greatest experience, you know, most deepest experiences, obviously as an undergraduate at Columbia, as a graduate student at MIT, and then as a professor at Tufts, um, Columbia, to a certain extent, certainly at the point in time when I went there, was a very, as you say, you and I are, I think, our contemporaries. It was a very traditional engineering science-centric uh, curriculum. Yep. Yep. And, and, and that's pretty much what, you know, that's pretty much how it proceeded. I don't think there was, um, certainly it was not part of the culture at that time. Uh, to really worry about student motivation or uh, the idea of what um, the, the outcome was to learn the material in those specific courses uh, and to a larger extent, large extent learn about the theoretical and technical underpinnings of those materials and less about their applications, um, one, because of time constraints, and the second, because, as we all know, um, applications implies the real world, and the real world is that place where all the simplifying assumptions don't work. <laughs> so uh, there was a little. So, so to a certain extent, uh, that experience probably the most departure from sure. uh, from Olin. Um, actually, as a graduate student at MIT, even though MIT, you know, I'd certainly not from an educational standpoint, but the idea that I think that MIT uh, did at least the milieu of the institute was a place where um, 
people was a culture of at least people accomplishing something, you know, doing something, building something, designing something, creating systems or software, things that just uh, didn't exist and you had the responsibility for. And a lot of it, as a graduate student, you learn yourself. You teach yourself. Um, So to a certain extent, I see some overlap uh, to that. Um, and, And as far as I think, I mean, Tufts University, which um, which is a place that I has is a dear place in my in my in my heart, um, and I'm still I feel still very much that part of that community. I'd say it was more of a traditional curriculum, but the one thing that I think was similar to my experience here at Olin, it was an institution that I think uh, had a certain level of student centricity to it um, that um, that I did not fa- that I found. Similar and actually, from the student standpoint, um, the Tufts being sort of a general university, small general university, um, it's, it had a tendency to attract students who were interested in a more open uh, or at least broad-based education. Yeah, and and um, I guess one of the things that's um, you know we're sort of trying to explore what if if there are are things that are distinctive about Olin. We talked a little bit about process before, and we talked, um, um, you know, I guess, uh, you know, from your own, uh, you know, so, so, so it would have been possible, you know, going back to that all in half million dollar bet on the poker table, um, for a school without, the mission obsessiveness to be have been generated. It would have been possible. You know, we have many very good small engineering uh, schools in this country, and I, I won't. Um, I'm not going to denigrate any of them by mentioning them. But we have, and there's a and there's a sense in which a number of people, when they visit Olin, think that it's special or different from many of them. And so, what what. Um, have we gotten at it already? Uh, this mission obsessiveness. Uh, well, you know, what's one, what's what's say, different I, about it? Yeah, I'd say one aspect, and I and certainly um, you know, in not mentioning other institutions, there are several institutions, uh, small and actually modest, and even large size. Who, who we, you know, one one important thing about this journey is that that I find exciting is that. This is uh, probably, and the, and, and the work that you and Mark have done uh, on your, your book and other things, I think it's a really exciting time for engineering education. Uh, so there are many places that are engaged in important yeah. work and important conversations that just did not happen 10 or 15 years ago. Yes. So, I, so I have to say, we're seeing much more a spirit of, a period of, uh, you know, a spirit of kindred spirits. Uh, but as far as, I'd say one aspect that is distinct is the idea of student empowerment, if you will. That as students go through an educational program, an important underpinning is that as they move along, they actually feel that they have the confidence that they could do more than they did before whatever that experience was. And to me, this has a real personal dimension to it because one underlying unease that I had as a student, and I'd say it's not because of a particular institution, but it's more the outcome of how, um, cert- how, how, if you will, the old-style curricular were structured, is that there was an intrinsic message that you never knew enough. And 
And that's why you had to take that next course and that next course and that next course because there was this reinforcing you didn't know enough to do anything or understand anything deeply until you took that next step, as opposed to one saying that I'd say is much more foundational, that the idea that it's a foundation for learning and a foundation for moving on to the other things, and it's building on a set of experiences that gives you the confidence uh, to move on to to that next thing. So I think from a pedagogical standpoint, that's really an important characteristic that I hope we're starting to see emerge as a paradigm for all undergraduate engineering education. Yeah, so that's so that's so interesting, and in the way you said it that that you that that the message was actually a recursion onto infinity that you don't know enough, right? And that um, that the the new message is that you can learn more. But you're you are enough to do something now, and and that 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 the successful education, and we in the book we use the term unleashing. But in in a successful educational experience, a person gains the confidence to go out into the world and 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 act and do something that um, that brings meaning to their life. Thoughts. Comment. Yes, well, I, I, I think that I, I, I think that's right, and I think that's I think what you're describing there is how an educational experience that ostensibly seems to be focused on engineering actually is this what I'll call liberating experience. Yeah. Um, this this you know liberating to touch other aspects of your life beyond whatever those professional trajectories. Um, uh, hap- happen to be so there's, a, there's almost an, an emotional element uh, associated with it, and um, you know I think that's really important. You know, there's some recent um, um, uh, uh, Gallup uh, data um, yep. that says you know when we make different types of decisions on what we do and how we act, um, this is actually, especially as an engineer, a little bit disheartening that. Uh, you know, about 30% of our considerations are based on uh, are based on facts and data, and about 70% is based on emotion. <laughs> so, no matter no matter what it is, um, but I think that's basic human. That's uh, human nature. Yeah, human nature, uh, and actually, if we structure learning environments, especially for the 18 to you know the traditional 18 to 22 year old group or cadre. Where so much, um, so much is is being formed that really provide the foundation for someone's entire life trajectory. Um, yep. When we think about that, if we have an educational models and educational systems that at least that don't at all acknowledge that that thirty seventy split, um, that we are really sort of we're, we're taking on a fight with one hand tied behind our back. Yeah. Um, no, great. I want to talk a little bit more about this, and then, I, and then, uh, why don't we take another break and and uh, talk? I want to talk a little bit more about this thirty seventy split and and what that means in educational terms, and then also um, talk about some of uh, what's new and coming down the pike at at Olin as uh, as the students and faculty and administrators at Olin reflect on on their future. That sounds great. 
So this is Big Beacon Radio with our special guest, Vin Mano, uh, provost of Olin College. In the next segment, uh, we're going we're gonna to talk about... Uh, talk a little bit more about this uh, 30-70 split and what's coming next. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of Three Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at threejoy.com or browse the Three Joy website www.3joy.com today. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. And our final segment is uh, sponsored by uh, Big Beacon's Educational Innovators Working Group and Innovators Across Boundaries. Join us uh, join us uh, early next year um, uh, to help develop uh, the leaders, change accelerators, and shift. Don't call them soft skills needed for effective transformation and change. We'll have a we're going to have a webinar uh, uh, right after the first of the year. So watch BigBeacon.org for details, or write to me at deg at BigBeacon.org to find out more. So we're rejoined by Vin Mano for our, our last segment here. And Vin, we were we were talking about. Um, the sort of 30-70 split, and, and and actually one of the things that kind of going around as a as a leadership coach and talking to leaders and students and faculty about what's going on in these change initiatives, it doesn't surprise me at all that um, there's uh, so little fact and and so much emotion, and in many ways that's reflected in uh, the stories we tell. The stories that we tell have um, have have a few facts in them, but there are a lot of assessments and judgments and feelings that are kind of tied up in the stories we tell. And in some ways, I, I've started to think about about education as as a as narrative uh, as engineering of narrative or or changing the story of your of your life and recognizing um, recognizing what that's about. Uh, comment. I think I I I think you're right, and I, um, and I think it's a particular. Um, again, I, I seem to be harping back to this, I, this notion of healthy tension. Um, again, in engineering that clearly is rooted in, you know, while not being a body of knowledge, it is rooted in having an understanding of various technical, st- various technical subjects, among other things, that do have facts and figures and laws yep. associated yep. with them. And 
that that's an important pow- that's an important aspect of the power of that learning paradigm that those things exist and to a certain extent that sort of the healthy mastering of those things is something that's is something that's is something that's in, in, important um, but in in general i think i think what you described does uh, you know does 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 make does make some sense as far as yeah. that broadening aspect is concerned. Yeah, and one way we can get a a, a, a view on this is you know so uh, Olin has like tons of visitors to come see what it's all about, and they come and they kick the tires, and um, and so and it's actually an interesting um, source of qualitative data. So people come to Olin with one thing in mind, and they oftentimes. Uh, leave with with uh, something else. What when when people come, you know? So I guess it'd be of interest to our listeners. You know, how many people actually do come to Olin, but also what is it that they, um, what are they surprised by when they come visit? Well, actually, you know, actually the numbers a few hundred people, a few hundred institutions come every year. It, so that yeah. means that every week. There are, you know, several institutions, three or four uh, institutions coming to Olin for some sort of visit, and then other folks, a smaller number, with whom we're engaged with various um, to to various levels, some small scale co creation projects, others sort of lo- large scale, what you might call uh, partner- partnerships. I'd say on first visit and um, and. And the people come to see both nationally and internationally, certainly in the international realm, nationally too, um, folks who are starting a new program or starting a new school, but even more often now, places that are trying to interject innovation in their own places, come to Olin basically to say, well, first of all, we've, got, we, we've heard a lot now, we've read about it, we've you know, heard it on shows like this, um, so we want to come and take a look take a peek under the hood, often they're interested when they first come of talking to me or the faculty leaders um, and trying and talking about, you know, procedures and administration and processes, but also wanting to say what's in the curriculum, what are the courses, how do they work. And we often, you know, a secret sauce, if you will, and we often say, actually, the first thing you should do is just, uh, we should just show you or at least have you experience what does the learning environment looks like, look like? Talk to our students. Interact with our students. Probably yeah. more important to talk to the students than talk to me. If you only have two hours or so to um, um, to visit to visit Olin, just to get a sense of what that's uh, what that's of what that's about. And rather than even talk about what are the requirements for faculty, to actually talk to faculty about what you know. Walk me through a typical semester for you as an Olin faculty member. So less about the the, pro, the exact whys and wherefores, but what is what is that experiential? What is that experiential component? The another aspect that I think is really important, and that we try to emphasize when we talk to folks that visit us, is the importance of the special mission or nature of their own institution that has to be mated to whatever they want to take on. So Olin has a particular. Culture has a particular context, right? It's a small, focused school in a suburban location, northeast part of the United States. There are all sorts of things associated with that. That's very different uh, than someone who might be in El Paso or might be in another sure. part of the world or a rural part of, of, of the United States. 
And those aspects of your institution have to be melded into your own planning. You can't just come and transplant. It's not a franchising mentality. Yeah. And and actually, Evan, it, um, our, our time is... Uh has has gone quickly and I had hoped to be able to ask you more about what's 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 new but we've we're basically running out of time and so I'm going to give you the the last 30 seconds or so and and uh, uh, to kind of have the last word and and tell our listeners um, whatever you'd like about um, um, in in closing oh well, sure uh, well thanks for the opportunity Dave I'd say the quick version of where where Olin is now actually it's on this journey of of both how to continue continuing to innovate as a lab school, but also to be more uh, focused and organized to actually work with other schools and other partners for catalyzing external change. So I think it's the combination of that bipartite mission that is what we're really focusing uh, right now. As far as uh, visiting Olin, or certainly people can contact me, um, the other person, we have something called a collaboratory, C-O-L-L, laboratory uh, yeah. and uh, people can certainly um, check that out online and uh, there's how to contact us for a visit uh, we love to meet people and learn about what's going on at other at other institutions um, so other than that I just really appreciate this opportunity Dave it was uh, great to uh, great to chat with you and the listeners well and we'll and we'll be sure as as uh especially as that outreach missions grows, I'm sure we'll have opportunity to get uh, you or others uh, from Olin back on the show. Thanks for, thanks for joining us, uh, Vin, and, and best wishes to you and, and Olin. Thank you very much, Dave. Take care. You've been listening to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education. Special thanks to our, our special guest, Vin, Vin Mano, and to Olin College. Help transform higher education. Join the movement to unleash a new generation of innovators by learning more at bigbeacon.org. Join us next week, same time, same channel, in our quest to transform higher education. Thank you for tuning in to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Please join Dave Goldberg soon for another edition. Listen every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Business Channel. For additional information about our programs or to find out about the next show, please visit bigbeacon.org. We'll talk again very soon.